0: enough water. I sure like your weather here. I mean, one moment it's pouring rain, the next morning it's sunny, and then late afternoon it pours rain again. I live in Southern California where it's just sunny and beautiful all the time. So when you get a little, around a little rain, it's kind of nice. It's good to be back in your country. I've had a, a lot of great moments in my life, woo! but one of the greatest moments ever was right here in South Africa. When uh, a number of years ago, I was asked by a whole slew of churches to come to Africa and debate a certain Muslim leader. And uh, then some lawyers wrote me. And I kept saying, no, the pastors knew these lawyers put together quite a thesis. And so I said, okay, I'll come. Oh, wow. Were any of you at that debate? Any of you? Yesterday, there were about 15 that had been there. Uh, But it was in Durban, at the Durban Tennis Stadium, jammed out. And uh, it was one of the greatest days of my life. Uh, and it's still impacting Africa. Uh, the DVDs, the tapes, everything of that time. And uh, but I've debated over 250 people in my life, and this man was one of the most despicable people I ever met in my life. That's one reason why I came over to debate, because he was so despicable. And uh, I don't say that of him. I only say that of two people I know in life, and he's one of them. But uh, don't let that reflect on South Africa that's fact. Um, In our time here today, I want to challenge your thinking. And if you don't think with me, you'll miss it. And if you miss it, it'll be difficult for many of you to help others to understand it. So I ask you to give me your minds to think it through with me. I'm going to address the area... Now, I saw I was supposed to be speaking on the resurrection, but I'm coming on the resurrection through the back door. And you'll see why. Um, because there's something that if you don't understand that, it doesn't matter what you believe about the resurrection of the deity of Christ or anything. And what it comes down to are the scriptures, the Bible, the Word of God. Is it trustworthy? Can you trust it? I want to do something here. I hope the video can catch up with me on this. But I want to, uh, I'm supposed to have another microphone here. Oh, here we go. I'm going to come out, now this is dangerous. To come out into the, it's dangerous in my country. Because it can easily embarrass you. Because you probably won't know the answer, nobody does. Uh, And so I take that chance of it backfiring on me. But if I don't do it, you won't believe me. That's my problem. So it's worth the chance of being misunderstood. So I'm going to come out and uh, ask some questions here. Uh, Let me just take anyone right here, this young lady. Are you a Christian? Yes. Why? Um, Because the Lord has um, helped me through difficult times in my life. Really? That's why you're a Christian? How do you know it was the Lord? Because I asked for it. I prayed. Well, Muslims pray. Hindus pray (laughs) and (laughs) all. You know when people don't want you to call on them. I I mean, all that says to me, please call. Young lady. Are you a Christian? Yes. Why? Because that's the only way. Because, because what? I don't know. It's the only way? You don't know? Okay. What? <laughs> can you roll your eyes? Let's take this young man right here, hard rock cafe man, hard rock, hard nose, hard thinking. Do you believe the Bible's the word of God? Yes. Do you believe it's true? Yes. Do you believe it's historically accurate and reliable? Yes. Why? Out of faith. Whew. Out of faith. A Muslim has faith that the Quran is the word of God. Does that make it the word of God? Say no. No. Okay. <laughs> if I had time, men and women, which I've done a number of audiences, take the whole evening, just go from person to person to person right through this room, there might be one of you here that could give me an intelligent reason why you're a Christian. I've been doing this for five years, randomly interviewing. Whenever I meet a pastor anywhere, and I'll say to a pastor, and they think it's a dumb question, I say, are you a Christian? Well, Well, of course. I'll say, why? In five years, not one person, not one pastor has given me any intelligent reason why they're a Christian. It just blows my mind. They will go around and say, is the Bible the Word of God? Oh, yeah. Is it true? Yeah. it's historically accurate? Yes. Why? Out of asking over 4,000 people, all believers, only six have given any intelligent answer. It, just, it, it doesn't matter what country I'm in doesn't matter if the entire audience are pastors. It doesn't matter. It just blows my mind. And like, I've been traveling, working with young people for 47 years. Man, that's a long time. When I started ministry, the Dead Sea was only sick. (laughs) No, it was that long ago. In my country, the Statue of Liberty was a little girl. So I've been doing this five decades and 47 years, randomly going up to people. Not one person has ever answered this question. I'll say, do you believe Jesus Christ said I am the truth? Well, yes. How do you know? How do you know he didn't say I am a truth? Or I'm one of many truths. Not one person in 47 years. Out of thousands I've asked that. Could ever answer it. I mean, it's unbelievable. <laughs> one seminary student said, Well, because it's a definite article. I said, wait a minute, how do you even know that definite article's in there? I'll see people, you believe Jesus said, I am the way? Well, yeah. How do you know? How do you know he didn't say I am a way? Or I am one of many ways. The question is, did Jesus say I am the way? Or did he say I am a way, or one of many ways? Yeah, well, how do you know that? You have confirmation of gospel. How do you know the gospel is true? You have no reason not to believe it. A <laughs> Muslim would say they have no reason to believe it. I want to address these issues. Because, folks, the body of Christ, and you hear me, whether in your country, my country, and country and world, cannot continue as we have the last 50 years. Not with the internet, folks. The internet is changing everything. Adult believers and young people are starting to be confronted with issues that all of you adults never even faced in the last year of the university. And they're start facing them at 12, 13, 14 years of age and they can't answer any of them. So then what a Christian does. You know what a Christian does? We fall back on dogmatism. We just become more dogmatic. Just because you're dogmatic has nothing to do with truth, it just means you're dogmatic. A cultist is dogmatic. A radical Muslim is dogmatic. Does that make it true? No, it just means they're dogmatic. But that's what we do as Christians. We fall back in dogmatism instead of truth. And so I want to address that issue. I want to address it from where I was coming from as a non-believer. As a non-believer, I set out to write my first book, The New Evidence That Demands a Verdict Against Christianity. I truly believe that Christians had two brains. One was lost and the other was out looking for it. I really believed that Christian. Look, I'd met. You know, the biggest barrier to me coming to Christ was every Christian I met could tell me what to believe. Oh, a Pentecostal, a Charismatic, a Baptist, a Reformed. They could all tell me what to believe. None of them could give me any intelligent reason why I ought to believe it. That was one of my biggest barriers, coming to Christ. Everyone could tell me what to believe. But they could give me no sound, intelligent reason why I ought to believe it. I was lucky I ever came to Christ after meeting so many Christians. And I set out to write that book. It's a huge book there against Christianity. Because I just got tired of Christians and I was going to write a book and refute it. And in the process, I became a Christian. Spent 13 years documenting why. Why? Not writing a book, just documenting it. There were two questions that I dealt with as a non-believer that I want to deal with here. It's reference to the New Testament, because we only have a limited amount of time. with the New Testament. First question I had, can I hold the New Testament in my hand and say, "What I have is what was written down or has it been changed?" Like so many people say, what people didn't like they took out of it what they did like, they added to it. Is what I have what was written down or has it been changed? But the bigger question to me as a non-Christian was this. Was what was written down true? Was it true? Did Jesus really do that? You ever been reading the Gospels, and you kind of shake your head and say, "Why? did Jesus really do that? Did he really say that? Did Jesus really say, I am the truth, or did he say, I am a truth, or one of many truths? Did he say, I am the way, or it could have cost him in chains because it sounds better than saying, I am a way, or one of many ways. And I want to share with you the process I went through and some of the things I discovered. Everything I share here is what I learned before I ever came to Christ. We only have time to deal with the New Testament. And only that briefly. Whenever you check out any document of antiquity, not just the Bible, any document of antiquity, you apply an historiography. But don't let that big word throw you. All it simply means is the principles of determining authenticity. In other words, that document was it written by who claimed to write it? Is what you have what was written down? And was what was written down true and real? Any part of a good historiography is what is called a bibliographical test. There's usually three to four major tests within a historiography. And almost always one of them is the bibliographical test. Now, that's not bibliographical. I was in the history department in one of the universities in my country, and I said, bibliographical, and the head of the history department spoke up and said, oh, I knew you'd bring the Bible in. I thought, man, you've got to be crazy. That's a history term, not a biblical term. It's not bibliographical. It's, I mean, bibliographical. It's bibliographical. Now, the bibliographical tests ask questions of the manuscripts of ancient documents. Now, what's a manuscript? Anyone here? What's a manuscript? What's a technical definition of the word manuscript? Anyone? Handwritten. Who said that? You're about the second or third person in all the years that would mention it right off the top. A handwritten copy. Most people say the original. No, the original is called the autographer. The original can be a manuscript or it can be a printed copy. A manuscript is a handwritten copy over against a printed copy. In other words, before the introduction of the movable type printing press uh, in the 15th century by Gutenberg. Before then, everything had to be done by hand. For example, take the Old Testament. You know there's over one million consonants in the Old Testament. Now don't go take the rest of the afternoon and evening to count them, just trust me. Over one million consonants. Think how long it would take you or me to conscientiously copy that accurately. A year? I mean a million consonants. That's not counting all the vowels. Well, think of all the human errors. Leaving a whole line out. Because why? Your eyes skip a line. Leaving a word out. Leaving a letter out. Misspelling a word. Transposing numbers. Writing 76 instead of 67. Think of all the dishonest errors. People lie. People cheat. People to deceive. Every generation has their Da Vinci code. Every generation has a Dan Brown. Every few months or every year and a half to two years, something like the Da Vinci Code or the Gospel of Time, etc., etc., has to come along. And it's always the same thing being rehashed. And every generation has that. And so you apply what's called a bibliographical test that asks questions of the manuscripts. Another reason they have to do it is this. Literature of antiquity was written on material that would perish. It would fade. It would fade away. The ink would gnaw. What was original paper, ancient paper, called? Anyone? Papyrus. Papyrus was from the papyri reed grown in the shallow waters of the delta of the Nile River in Egypt. They would clip the reeds just below the waterline, slice them, let them dry out. Then they would crisscross them, and in between they would put a gluey consistency, And they would press it down. After a while, it really became quite a durable paper. In fact, some of it, you can hold it up and almost see through it. It's almost transparent. But it's quite durable. But even with that durability, it will rot away or deteriorate or turn to dust. Maybe in 50 years or 800 years. You say, why such a time span? Well, it depends on how much that papyrus is exposed to the elements, to dryness, to humidity, to the sunlight. All affected... The duration of the papyrus. Then the ink. They had pretty good ink then, made out of charcoal. But then, like today, with all of our modern discoveries, you take ink today, leave a note for your kids, leave it on a picnic table or something outdoors, let the sunlight hit it, and in a day, you won't be able to read it. Why? It fades. Well, the same thing happened with the manuscripts. So here you have the original. The autographer, autographa it will start to rot away. So you copy generation number one. Not just the Bible, any literature of antiquity. And maybe you make 30 copies, and that will start to deteriorate or whatever. You make 60 copies. Then from that, maybe you need another 70 or 100 or 200 copies. You copy that ad infinitum. Now here are the two questions they ask. And these two questions are asked to answer the first question that I had, is what you have what was written down? That's what these two questions are, are focused on. The first question is this, what is the timeline from the original, the autographer, to the closest copy? It the rule of thumb, do you use that in South Africa, rule of thumb phrase? You do. What does it mean? No. Uh, the rule of thumb historically is that the closer the copies to the original, the autographer, the less chance of error or discrepancies. Why would that be? Anyone. You all know the answer. What well, simply means the fewer times it was copied. Usually the closer the art, not always, but usually the closer the manuscript to the original, it means it's been copied once or twice less. So less chance of human error and discrepancy to creep in. But, oh, folks, something I've learned over the years. The more I compare the Scriptures with any other literature of antiquity, oh, men and women, the more confidence I have in the Word of God, the more confidence I have in the Scriptures. If I did nothing in my life but just compare the Bible with other literature, I would come to belief in Christ. Uh, you'd come to the conclusion that it's true. Let me show you what I mean time-wise from the copies that you have, how far they're removed from the original. With Pliny the Younger, to you scholars, it's probably Plinius Segundus, From the time he wrote to the closest copy, 750 years. Everything has been lost or rotted away in between. Of Caesar and the Gallic Wars. From the time he wrote to the closest copy is over 1,000 years. Of Plato, 1,200 years. Of Aristotle did his Poetics, 343 B.C., the closest copy is 1100 A.D. I've had the privilege of lecturing over a thousand universities in 114 countries. And I've never yet met a professor who taught literature and taught Aristotle that knew that from the time Aristotle wrote to the closest copy is thousand four hundred years. Sophocles, 1400 years. Euripides, 1,500 years, Catullus, 1,600 years, the time they wrote to the closest copy. With the New Testament, just the New Testament. In the book, The New Evidence, Man's a Verdict, I document this in detail. I can take you back within 50 years. Unheard of in literature. Miraculous. Um, But I never knew this until I set out to write a book against it. And I found out that I was dumb. Just others were dumber. They made a movie out of it. Dumb and dumber. But I never knew it until I set out to make a joke of those Christians. I found out the joke was on me. In about four or five years, we'll be able to take that back to about 25 to 30 years, which are unparalleled in history. Because of new discoveries made about 5,000 Greek manuscripts and 55,000 portions. And once they're all photographed, because we have to photograph with two cameras and two CD burners every day, but it takes an entire day to do one manuscript and there's 5,000 of them. Because we'll never get back in to see them for another 1,000 years or until Christ returns. But when they're all photographed and everything and all the parts, then it'll be released right across the internet. And it'll be, it'll make quite a statement in the world at that time. But right now, we can go back within 50 years. But the second question was more important to me. How many manuscripts do you have? You see, the greater number of manuscripts you have, the easier it is to take that family of manuscripts and recreate the of the original, and check out any errors or discrepancies. For example, if you have twenty manuscripts, and within those manuscripts you have the Gospel of John, and you have John three, but there's three different renderings of John three sixteen. Some render for God so loved the world. Some render for God thought a lot about the world, and some say God thought the world was cool. How do you know what was in the original? You can't. With twenty manuscripts, you can't. It's impossible to. But if you have four, five hundred. Oh, it's a lot easier. There's certain steps you take to eliminate, to recreate what you call a pure text. In other words, to recreate the autograph of the original, to a certain level of certainty. Again, comparing the scripture with other literature of antiquity. Caesar and the Gallic Wars, there's only ten manuscripts that survive. Everything else has been lost completely. Of Plato, in the Tetralogies, there's only seven copies that remain. Of Tacitus, who is a second century Roman historian, only 20 copies remain. Of Pliny the Younger, there's seven. Of Thucydides, there's eight. Of Suetonius, there's eight. Of Herodotus, there's eight. There's 193 of Sophocles. There's two of Lucretius. There's nine of Euripides. There's 200 of Demosthenes. There's 12 of Aristophanes. Of Aristotle and the Poetics, there's about 49. Men and women, when it comes to just the New Testament, not even the Old Testament, just the New Testament, I'm able to document over 24,633 manuscripts. And that doesn't include the New Discoveries, 5,000 more. I never knew that. And I didn't want to know it, tell you the truth. I did not want to believe it. Because I did not want to become a Christian. But boy, was it puzzling. Because the more I examined the evidence, the more my basis of objection completely eroded. 24,633 manuscripts of just the New Testament. Taking these manuscripts, and I document it in a book, can recreate the original the autographa to a 99.5% pure text. That what I have is what was written down. Anyone here tell me, what's the number two book in all history in manuscript authority by numbers? It's not Harry Potter. Uh, it's not the Old Testament. Anyone here, what's the number two book? Who said that? The Iliad. Where'd you learn that? My book, okay. <laughs> you know what was an indictment on our educational system? In all the years of asking that, all but one person learned it from my book. Not one professor in the university knew it unless they read Evidence of a Verdict. That's an indictment on the education of my country. I'm sure it's much better in your country. That's a joke. Number two, okay, let's see these two. How many manuscripts for the Iliad, number two? Wow. He's a little bit closer. 643. Look look at number one, number two in all history. I never knew that. Until I set out to write, evidence demands a verdict against it. And I said, wait a minute. I finally concluded I can hold the new, and I wasn't a Christian, I can hold the New Testament in my hand and say what I have is what was written down. It has not been changed. Now, I don't have all the answers. I sure got a lot more now than I had 20 years ago, but I still got a lot of questions I can't answer. But I have the confidence that what I have is what was written down. But the second question was even more critical to me. Was what was written down true? Because if it wasn't true, and I could care less that what I have is what was written down. I'm not a dummy. I want to walk you through four simple lines of reasoning. There's about eight to ten lines of reasoning. I want to walk you through four. That's what we have time for. It's interesting, this seminar, they always say the worst time to ever teach any time is between two and five o'clock. I thought, Wow. This is a challenge between 2 and about 3.30, quarter to 4. is the hardest time of the day for anyone to teach or to learn. Uh, But we're going to do both. We're going to do both with um, these four simple lines of reasoning. Now, folks, you've got to think through with me. You've got to think with me. Don't just hear what I'm saying. Think what I'm saying. It's like reading a book. I call it think reading. Most people just read a book. Think a book. As you're reading it, think what it's saying and process it. Wow. One, you can read faster, and second, you learn a lot more from it. So think, listen with me, especially the last two lines of reasoning. Now I want to look at the issue that I had to deal with as a non-believer. Yes, what I have is what was written down, but was what was written down true? The first line of reasoning, the writers of the New Testament And the apostles wrote as eyewitnesses or recorded eyewitness accounts. A lot of people don't realize that. They wrote as eyewitnesses or recorded eyewitness accounts. Matthew, Mark, and John in any court of law would be determined eyewitness accounts. Luke wouldn't. Remember Luke said in chapter 1, he said, I've examined everything carefully from the beginning. From who? From those who were eyewitnesses. To record the exact truth of the things taught among us. I believe Luke wrote the gospel of Luke in the book of Acts. You ever ask yourself why he wrote it? Most people don't. You ever read it and see all the detail? I mean, there is so much detail that's not necessary to the story. To the truth. In Luke and, and, and Acts, see, Acts is just Luke part two. I don't know why they put John or anything in between. You know, I'll read just Luke and go right into Acts and you have one gospel. But I am convinced that Luke wrote Luke in the book of Acts as a legal treatise for the defense of Paul before Nero in the 60s A.D. I believe Theophilus, who had to be a high Roman leader, I do not believe, a lot of people say, well, he was a Christian. I don't think he was. Whether he was or not is not an issue, but I just don't think he was. It's not clear in the scripture. But when uh, he addressed Theophilus, he addressed him as a high Roman official. And Theophilus had asked Luke to do his treatise. And I believe Theophilus had something to do with Paul's defense, or the gathering information for the Roman judicial system. And uh, you keep that in mind, start reading the book. Wow. And you keep in mind what some of the issues were in the book of Acts and why they were being answered, you'll see. This is a defense for Paul. But you look at Luke, chapter 3, the first three verses, there's like 15 historical references in three verses. So-and-so, and and the time of so-and-so, and and -and so-and-so, who's son of so-and-so, who was this, who was a tetrarch, the son of so-and-so, on and on and on and on. I think there's 15 references, historically, in three verses. Why? The Roman judicial system demanded that before a case ever went to court, there had to be a very detailed presentation of the evidence documented for that case. Now, normally what happened was, Uh, in the Roman Empire, when something very unusual happened, a crime or whatever, right then they would do that study. Then they would send it to the archives in Rome. Then if that ever became a legal situation, then it was taken out of the archives and checked out for historical detail before it was ever used. And I, I just personally believe that Luke, in the book of Acts, went through the scrutiny of the Roman judicial system for its accuracy. And that's how you also understand so much of the detail and the defenses that Luke uses for the Apostle Paul throughout the book of Acts. So Luke was not an eyewitness. He recorded his material from those who were eyewitnesses. Matthew, Mark, and John would be considered eyewitnesses, except Mark really wasn't an eyewitness of much of what he wrote about. You say, what? Why would they call him an eyewitness for this reason? Mark was a scribe. He was a recorder. Mark recorded what Peter had seen and heard as an eyewitness. You could call it the Gospel of Peter instead of the Gospel of Mark. Even in literature, apart from the Bible, say that Mark wrote down carefully all that Peter had said and seen and heard. To make sure not to add to or leave out anything. Even secular literature confirms that. But in a court of law, his document would be considered an eyewitness account. So they wrote as eyewitnesses or recorded eyewitness accounts. In the gospel or in first epistle of John, in chapter 1, 1 to 3, there's some statements there that most people don't remember. Why? We kind of skip over it. It really has very little to do with substance or content. And it has more to do with structure. And this is what he's saying there. He is telling the people, John is telling the people where he and the other apostles got their information about what Jesus said and what Jesus did. That's what's key there. John starts out by saying, what our ears have heard, not somebody else's ears, what our ears have heard. What our eyes have seen, what our hands have handled, we declare unto you. Now, folks, you don't have to be very smart to realize you can't get much closer to a person or an event than you're recording. They were eyewitnesses. Eyewitness testimony is probably the best testimony we have historically. Now, it doesn't mean it's always true. You have to be careful because you could have a skewed perspective in everything with eyewitness. That's what's nice of so many eyewitnesses uh, with the New Testament. But even with that, it's the most accurate, best testimony we have. In 2 Peter 1.16, Peter says this. Throw it up there, will you? For we did not follow cleverly devised tales. People say to me in the universities, <laughs> you know, back then people would believe anything. They couldn't tell the difference between tales and truth or fact or fiction or hoax or history. I'll tell you what, folks, I'll put Peter and Paul up against any professor in South Africa. I mean, these professors in universities that taught that the Da Vinci Code was true, it was historical, it was factual. Oh, get real. And they try to tell me that today they can discern the difference between tales and truth, and they can't even tell, discern the difference in the Da Vinci Code. I can't believe professors in universities have come out, required reading in my country, in the literature departments. This is factual, undermining Christianity. It was all false. 98% totally false all the way through. And I wrote a book and step by step by step documented it. But It doesn't matter in the university. As long as it substantiates what you want to believe, then it's true. We can all get caught up in that too. So what is Peter saying here? He's saying, we know the difference between tales and truth. He said, we did not follow cleverly devised tales. What he's saying is, we know there's tales. We know we have Dan Browns. And we weren't following these tales that people tell. We were following the truth. When we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But look at this. But we were eyewitnesses. They wrote as eyewitnesses or recorded eyewitness accounts. I concluded, if I couldn't trust them, then I couldn't trust anyone. I would have to become a total historic agnostic or skeptic. Second line of reasoning, which is one of the most important for me, the appeal, I'll make this statement and then I'll explain it, the appeal to the knowledge of their listeners or readers Concerning the truth about Christ. You know, what do you mean by that statement? This is what I mean. Over the years, I developed principles to help me in debates and in writing books to arrive at historical truth. Because it's not all that easy. And to have confidence that what you do believe is historical and is true whether you believe it or not. And one principle I devised is this. That for me, the most accurate truth is that truth that was presented in the presence of hostile, knowledgeable witnesses, where if it was false, it would be falsified. In other words, when you're studying a statement by Arnold Toynbee or someone else, is that statement really true? Well, were there people alive at that time where it was false? They would have falsified it. It's like in a court of law. If you appeal to your opponent and they confirm that what you're saying is true, boy, you're on solid ground. In other words, you have knowledgeable people who are skeptical, who to you, confirming the truth of what you're presenting. Well, this happened all the way through the scriptures. This is what I'm saying in the earlier statement. The writers in the New Testament not only said, look, we were there. We saw Jesus do that. We heard him say that. We were there when Jesus said that. Well, now, come on, follow me with your minds. In the presence of hostile, knowledgeable Jewish eyewitnesses, antagonists, who knew what Jesus said did. Look, folks, Palestine was just a little tiny place in the face of the earth. It is today, and Jerusalem is maybe two, 3,000 people, just a little tiny city. They knew what Jesus said and did. And they would take and throw their claims about what Christ said and did right back upon knowledgeable Jewish eyewitnesses, and they would say, you were there. You saw it. You heard him say that. You were there when he did that they didn't dare to add to or take away from anything that Christ said or did because they were people there that opposed them, that thought they were propagating a false messiah who would have corrected it immediately. In Acts 2.22, you've all read it. I wonder how many of you caught the shift that took place there. Let me give you the context for it. Peter is speaking to an antagonistic Jewish audience. It was people that knew what Christ said and did. And he's appealing to his audience. Notice what Peter says. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you. Notice the switch. Before it was attested to us, attested to us. We saw, we heard him, we were there. Now switch, attested to you and to you and to you and to you. By God with what? With miracles. Wonders and signs, which can be verified by the five senses. And now notice the boldness of Peter. Which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Come on, folks. If they hadn't seen those miracles, wonders, and signs, Peter would have been lucky to have made it out there alive. I've had the privilege, of course the greatest privilege here in South Africa, to do over 250 debates. I love debates. I love the tension of it. Uh, there is, there's a tension there that it just, you can ask my wife, it just turns me on. Uh, not that way. Uh, maybe I could that way too, anyway. But in debating, I always say you should never lose a debate. It doesn't mean you won't, but you shouldn't. If you do your homework, and you develop the right approach and principles, you should never lose a debate if you're on the side of truth. Especially a Christian should. Because I learned one thing. A man with an experience, a man with an argument, is always at the mercy of a man with an experience. A Christian always has the experience and the argument. That's why in every debate I've ever done, I always, no matter what my opponent says, I share my testimony. I share my testimony. No matter what my opponent said, the second part of the debate, I just give my testimony. Why? A man with an argument is always at the mercy of a man with an experience. And Jesus Christ has changed my life, but I also don't know why I believed. One well, of the dumbest things to me when I say to somebody, you believe Jesus Christ, son of God, yes. How do you know? Well, he changed my life. Oh, really? Amway changes lives. Lies changes lives. Cults changes lives. Radical Islam changes lives. And somebody said, I'll say, is the Bible Word of God? Yes, how do you know? Because it changed my life. Oh, really? You ever shared Christ or witness to a, a Sufi Muslim? I love Muslims. I really, I can't explain why, but I love Muslims. I love interacting with Muslims, with talking with them, with, with having coffee with them. But if you ever witnessed to a Sufi Muslim? Almost, I think, every single one has told me the Quran changed their life. And then some Christians are so pompous, they'll say, well, not the way God changed mine. I said, you want to bet? I'll take you to a Muslim couple on Balboa Island near where I live in Southern California. And over the years, I've gone in and shared with them. And a number of months ago, I went in and shared my testimony. They run a store there. And they stood there and allowed me to share my entire testimony very politely. And then I stood there, and I allowed them. When I walked down that store, I went, whoa. Their lives were changed. And the way they lived backed it up. And people say to me, I know Jesus Christ, Son of God. Why? Because he changed my life. Wow. That's amazing. You have no argument with anyone then. So a Christian should have the argument and the experience. So here's a principle I developed, is I would try, I wasn't always able to do it, I would try to appeal to my opponent in every debate 20 times on what I was saying was, was true. And to do that, you had to spend for every debate, and that's why you do two or three day- debates at one time, preparing for them, nine months to a year to prepare for a debate. Because I had to get inside my opponent's mind everything else. And I had to know everything they had ever done. Or I could go into debate and say, isn't it true that in 1981, it's Saturday afternoon at 2.30, such and such a conference you said. And I want to get them 20 times agreeing with me. Yes, 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 yes. In front of thousands of students. And they would have to answer yes, because if they didn't, I'd bury them. I had the documentation. But let's say you're in one of those debates. And I peel my opponent 20 times, and 19 times I'm right, and one time I'm wrong. Your opponent's very smart. They'll bury you with that one time. They'll just keep coming back to it, coming back to it, coming back to it, coming back to it, like American politics and South African. And when you leave that debate and you go home and your parents or your teacher, somebody says to you, how did debate go? How did Josh do? I'll guarantee you. You wouldn't initially relate the 19 times I was right. You would relate the one time I was wrong. And that's what you would remember. But that happened with the New Testament. They constantly appealed to their knowledge of what Jesus said and did. I can tell you this. If Jesus hadn't said, I am the truth, men and women, it could never have gotten into the scriptures. If they had not heard him say that, that was so anti-Israel, anti-Rome, that was so politically incorrect, that if they had not heard him, they would have lost all integrity. It never could have made it into scriptures. When did he say that? We were there. He never said that. Besides, Totally apart from the Bible history. Why was Christ crucified? He claimed to be a truth, one of many truths? No. Even apart from the Bible, they'll confirm because he claimed to be the truth. If Jesus had not said, I am the way, oh, folks, it never could have gotten into the scriptures. They would have torn the scriptures apart, they would have lost all integrity. That was so against Israel, Rome, everything, to ever have the audacity to say, I am the way. And I have a confidence that he was not crucified because he said, I am a way or one of many ways. He was crucified because he said, I am the way. And they heard him say that.